Welcome to Word for Wordcast and part two of Helen Oyeyemi's Books and Roses. Last week we followed young Monsi growing up with the monks in Catalonia and then, as a young woman, venturing out on her own to Barcelona where she meets the alluring Signora Lucy and hears about Lucy's adventures and of her love story with Sofia. Stay tuned after this episode for my conversation with the director of Books and Roses, Michael French, and two of the actors, Jeanne Simon and Leontine Mbele Umbong. Word for Wordcast is sponsored today by Bird and Beckett Books. Bird and Beckett in San Francisco's Glen Park neighborhood offers a deep and broad selection of books in a uniquely cozy setting. Read the authors that pen the stories that Word for Word brings to your ears and tune in to the bookshop's live streams on Friday and Saturday nights for fantastic jazz straight from the bookshop stage. Check their website at birdbeckett.com. That's birdbeckett, B-E-C-K-E-T-T dot com. They're open for browsing six days a week, Tuesday through Sunday, noon to six. And now, please enjoy part two of Books and Roses, by Helen Oyeyemi. happily settled down to work. First, she sent for papyrus and handmade a book, leaf by leaf, binding the leaves together between board covers. Then she filled each page from memory, drew English roses budding and Chinese roses in full bloom, peppercorn pink bourbon roses climbing walls and silvery musk roses drowsing in flower beds. She took every rose she'd ever seen, made them as lifelike as she could. Where she shaded each petal, the rough paper turned silken. And in these lasting forms, she offered them to Sophia. The making of this rose book coincided with a period in Lucy's life when she was making money without having to lie to anyone. She'd fallen in with an inveterate gambler who'd noticed that she steadied his nerves to a miraculous degree. He always wanted blackjack whenever she was sitting beside him, so they agreed he'd give her 10% of each evening's winnings. (laughs) This man only played when the stakes were very high, so he won big, and they were both happy. Lucy had no idea what was going to happen when their luck ran out. She could only hope her gambler wouldn't try to get violent with her, because then she'd have to get violent herself. (sighs) And that would be a shame, because she liked the man. He never pawed at her. He always asked her how Sophia was getting on, and he was very much in love with his wife. Who loved him, too, and thought he was a night watchman. The gambler's wife would have gone mad with terror if she'd known how close she came to losing her life savings each night. But she didn't suspect a thing, so she packed her husband light suppers to eat at work. 
Suppers the man couldn't even bear to look at. His stomach always played up when he was challenging Lady Luck. So? Lucy ate the suppers and enjoyed them very much. The flavor of herbed olives lingering in her mouth so that when she drank her wine, she tasted all the greenness of the grapes. From where Lucy sat beside her gambler, she had a view through a casement window. A view of a long street that led to the foot of a mountain. And what Lucy liked best about her casement window view was that as nighttime turned into dawn, the mountain seemed to travel down the street. It advanced on tiptoe, fully prepared to be shooed away. Insofar as a purely transient construction of flesh and blood can remember or foretell what it is to be stone, Lucy understood the mountain's wish. To listen at the window of a den of gamblers and be warmed by all that free-floating hope and desolation. Her wish for the mountain was that it would one day shrink to a pebble, crash in through the glass, and roll into a corner to happily absorb tavern life for as long as the place stayed standing. Lucy tried to write something to Sophia about the view through the casement window, oh, but found that her description of the mountain expressed a degree of pining so extreme that it made for distasteful reading. She didn't post that letter. Sophia had begun working as a lady's maid. An appropriate post for her, as she had the requisite patience. It can take months before you even learn the location of a household safe, let alone discover the code that makes its contents available to you. But was that really Sophia's plan? Lucy had a feeling she was being tricked into the conventional again. Sophia instigated bothersome conversations about the future, the eventual need for security, and it's being possible to play one trick too many. From time to time, Lucy paused her work on the Rose Book to write and send brief notes. Oh, Sophia, I've been so busy I haven't had time to think. I'm afraid I'll only be able to send you a small token for this San Jordi's day you wrote about. I'll beg my forgiveness when I see you. Sophia replied, Whatever the size of your token, I'm certain that mine is smaller. You'll laugh when you see it, Lucy. Lucy wrote back, <laughs> Competitive as ever. Whatever it is you're doing, don't get caught. I love you. I love you. On April 23rd, an envelope addressed in Sophia's hand arrived at the post office for Lucy. It contained a key on a necklace chain and a map of Barcelona with a black rose drawn over a small section of it. Lucy turned the envelope inside out. But there was no accompanying note. She couldn't even send a book? Lucy thought, tutting in spite of herself. She hadn't yet sent the book she'd made, and as she stood in the queue to post it, she began to consider keeping it. The woman in line ahead of her was reading a newspaper, and Lucy saw Sophia's face. More, an imperfectly sketched reproduction of it, and read the word Barcelona in the headline. 
Some vital passage narrowed in her heart, or her blood got too thick to flow through it. She read enough to understand that the police were looking for... A lady's maid in connection to a murder and a series of other crimes they suspected her of having committed under other names. Murder? Murder? Impossible! Not Sophia! Lucy walked backward until she found a wall to stand behind her. She rested until she was able to walk to the train station, where she bought train tickets and the newspaper of which she read a single page as she waited for the train to come. She would go where the map in her purse told her to go. She would find Sophia, Sophia would explain, and they would laugh. They'd have to leave the continent, of course. They might even have to earn their livings honestly, like Sophia wanted, but... Please. 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 This pleading went on inside her for the entire journey, through three train changes and the better part of a day. A mountain seemed to follow along behind each train she took. Whenever she looked over her shoulder... There it was, keeping pace. She liked to think it was her mountain she was seeing, the one she'd first seen in Grenoble, now trying its best to keep faith with her until she found Sophia. Sophia's map led Lucy to a crudely hewn door in a wall. This didn't look like a door that could open, but a covering for a mistake in the brickwork. The key fit the lock, and Lucy walked into a walled garden overrun with roses. She waded through waves of scent, lifting rope-like vines of sweetbriar and eglantine out of her path, her steps scattering pale blue butterflies in every direction. Sophia had said that Lucy would laugh at the size of her gift. And perhaps if Lucy had found her there, she would have. After all, she'd never been given a secret garden before. But the newspapers were saying that this woman who looked like Sophia had killed her employer. And Lucy was very much afraid that it was true. And this gift was the reason. At nightfall, she considered sleeping among the roses, all those frilled puffs of air carrying her towards some answer. But it was better to find Sophia than to dream. She spent two weeks flitting around the city, listening to talk of the killer lady's maid. She didn't dare return to the rose garden, but she wore the key around her neck in the hope and fear that it would be recognized. It wasn't, and she opted to return to Grenoble before she ran out of money. Her gambler was in hospital. There'd been heavy losses at the blackjack table. His wife had discovered what he'd been up to, developed a wholly unexpected strength. Inhuman strength, he called it. Broken both of his arms, and then moved in with a carpenter who'd clearly been keeping her company while he'd been out working on their finances. Still... He was happy to see Lucy. Fortuna smiles upon me again. <laughs> what could Lucy do? She made him soup. 
And when she wasn't at his bedside, she was picking pockets to help cover the hospital bills. They remain friends to this day. He was impressed by her assumption of responsibility for him. And she was struck by the novelty of it never occurring to him to blame anybody else for his problems. A few weeks after her return to Grenoble, there was a spring storm that splashed the streets with moss from the mountaintops. The stormy night turned the window of Lucy's room into a door. Through sleep, Lucy became aware that it was more than just rain that rattled the glass. Someone was knocking. Half awake, she staggered across the room to turn the latch. When Sophia finally crawled in, shivering and drenched to the bone, they kissed for a long time. Kissed until Lucy was fully woken by the chattering of Sophia's teeth against hers. Oh, she fetched a towel. Sophia performed a heart-wrenchingly weak little striptease for her. And Lucy wrapped her love up warm and held her. And didn't ask what she needed to ask. After a little while, Sophia spoke. Her voice so perfectly unchanged, it was closer to memory than it was to real time. Today... I asked people about you, and I even walked behind you in the street for a little while. Oh, You bought some hat ribbon. And a sack of onions. And you got a good deal on the hat ribbon. <laughs> Sometimes I almost thought you'd caught me watching, but now I'm sure you didn't know. You're doing well. I'm proud of you. And all I've managed to do is take a key and make a mess of things. I wanted to give you... I wanted to give you... Sleep, Lucy said. Just sleep. Just sleep. Those were the only words she had the breath to say. But Sophia had come to make her understand about the key. The key, the key. It was like a mania, and she wouldn't sleep until Lucy heard her explanations. From the first, Sophia had felt a, a mild distaste for the way her employer... Senora del Olmo! ...talked. There was such an interesting exchange rate in this woman's mind. Whenever she remembered anyone giving her anything, they only gave a very little and kept the lion's share to themselves. But whenever she remembered giving anyone anything, she gave a lot. So much, it almost ruined her. Apart from that, Sophia had neither liked nor disliked Signora Del Olmo, preferring to concentrate on building her mental inventory of the household treasures, of which there were many. In addition to these, there was a key the woman wore around her neck. She toyed with it as she interviewed gardener after gardener. Sophia sat through the interviews too, taking notes and reading the character references. 
None of the gardeners seemed able to fulfill Signora del Olmo's requirement of absolute discretion. The garden must be brought to order, but it must also be kept secret. Eventually, Sophia had offered the services of her own green thumb. By that time, she'd earned enough trust for Signora del Olmo to take her across town to the door of the garden, open it, and allow Sophia to look in. Sophia saw at once that this wasn't a place where any gardener could have influence. And she saw in the roses a perpetual gift, a tangled shock of a studio where Lucy could work and play and study color. Senora del Olmo instructed Sophia to wait outside, entered the garden and closed the door behind her. After half an hour, the senora emerged, short of breath, with flushed cheeks. As if she'd just been kissed? Lucy asked. Not at all like that. It was more as if she'd been seized and shaken like a faulty thermometer. I asked her if there was anybody else in the garden, and she almost screamed at me. No, no! Why do you ask that? <laughs> the Signora had picked a magnificent bunch of yellow roses with lavender tiger stripes. Such vivid flowers that they made her hand look like a wretched cardboard prop for them. Signora del Olmo kept the roses in her lap throughout the carriage ride, and by the time we'd reached home, she was calm. But I thought there must be someone else in that garden. The question wouldn't have upset her as much otherwise, you know? No one else was there when I was, Lucy said. Sophia blinked. So you've been there? Yes. And there were only roses. Only roses? So how did you get the key? They were watching each other closely now. Sophia watching for disbelief. Lucy watching for a lie. In the evening, I went up to the Signora's sitting room to see if there was anything she wanted before I went to bed myself. The only other people the Signora employed were... A cook. And a maid of all work. And they didn't live with us, so they'd gone home for the night. I knocked at the door, and the Signora didn't answer. But I heard... A sound. A sound? Like a voice? Yes. No. A creaking. A rusty handle turning. Or a wooden door forced open until its hinges buckled. Or, to me, it was the sound of something growing. I sometimes imagine that if we could hear trees growing, we'd hear them creak like that. I knocked again, and the creaking stopped. But a silence began. A silence I didn't feel good about at all. But I felt obliged to do whatever I could 
If I left a door closed and it transpired that somebody might have lived if I had only opened it in time, I couldn't bear that. So I had to try the door no matter what. I prayed that it was locked, but it opened. And I saw the senora standing by the window in the moonlight with her back to me. She was holding a rose cupped in her hands as if about to drink from it. She was standing very straight. Nobody stands as straight as she was standing. Not even the dancers at the opera house. Dead? No, she was just having a nap. Of course she was fucking dead, Lucy. I lit the lantern on the table and went up close. Her eyes were open, and there was some form of comprehension in them. I almost thought she was about to hush me. She looked as if she understood what had happened to her and was about to say, Shh, I know. I know. And there's no need for you to know. It was the most terrible look. The most terrible. I looked at the rest of her to try to forget it, and I saw three things in quick succession. One, that the color of the rose she was holding was different from the color of the roses in the vase on the windowsill. The ones in the vase were yellow, streaked with lavender, as I told you. And the one in the senora's hand was orange, streaked with brown. Lucy mixed paints at the back of her mind. What turned yellow to orange and blue-purple to brown? Red. I also saw that there was a hole in the senora's chest. A hole? A small, precise puncture. Sophia tapped the center of Lucy's chest and pushed gently. It went through to the other side. And yet, no blood. It was all in the rose. What else? The stem. (sighs) The orange rose. Sophia was shivering again. How could I tell these things to a policeman? How could I tell him that this was how I found her? Rose had grown a kind of tail. Long, curved, thorny. I ran away. You took the key first, Lucy reminded her. I took the key, and then I ran. The lovers closed their eyes on their thoughts and passed from thought into sleep. When Lucy woke, Sophia had gone. She'd left a note. Wait for me. And that was the only proof that the nighttime visit hadn't been a dream. A decade later, Lucy was still waiting. The waiting had changed her life. For one thing, she'd left France for Spain, and the only name she now used was her real one, the name that Sophia knew, so that Sophia would be able to find her. And using her real name meant keeping the reputation associated with that name clean. She showed a book of roses she'd made for Sophia to the owner of a gallery. The man asked her to name her price. So she asked for a sum that she herself thought outrageous. 
he found it reasonable and paid on the spot, then asked her for more. And so Sophia drew Lucy into respectability after all. Signora Lucy's separation from Sophia meant that she often painted landscapes in which she looked for her. Signora Lucy was rarely visible in these paintings, but Sophia always was. And looking at the paintings engaged you in her search for a lost woman, an uneasy search because somehow in these pictures seeing her never meant the same thing as having found her. Signora Lucy had other subjects. She was working on her own vision of the judgment of Paris, and Monse had been spending her lunch breaks posing for Signora Lucy's study of Aphrodite. Monse was a fidgeter again and again, she was told. No, 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 as you were. Then Signora Lucy would come and tilt Monse's chin upward or trail her fingers through Monse's hair so that it fell over her shoulder just so. And the proximity of that delightful frown clouded Monse's senses to agree that made her very happy to stay exactly where she was as long as Signora Lucy stayed too. But these weren't the paintings that sold. It was Signora Lucy's lost woman paintings that had made her famous. The lost woman was thought to be a representation of the Signora herself. But if anybody had asked Monse about that, she would have disagreed. She knew some of the paintings quite well, having found out where a number of them were being exhibited. Sunday morning had become her morning for walking speechlessly among them. Sophia crossed a snowy valley with her back to the onlooker, and she left no footprints. In another painting, Sophia climbed down a ladder of clouds. You turned to the next picture frame, and she had become a gray-haired woman who closed her eyes and turned to dust at the same time as sweeping herself up with a little brush she held in her left hand. And the garden? Montserrat asked. Lucy smiled. Still mine. I go there once a year. The lock never changes. I think the place has been completely forgotten. Except maybe one day she'll meet me there. I hope she does, Monse lied. But isn't there some danger there? So you believe what she said? Well, yes. Thank you. Thank you for saying that, even if you don't mean it. The papers said this. Senora Fausta del Olmo was stabbed. What Sofia described was close enough. Monse thought that even now, it wouldn't be difficult to turn half-fledged doubt into something more substantial. She could say, quite simply, I'm touched by your constancy, Senora, but I think you're waiting for a murderer. Running from the strangeness of such a death was understandable. Having the presence of mind to take the key was less so. Or, Monse considered, you had to be Sophia to understand it. And even as herself, Monse couldn't say for sure what she would have done or chosen not to do in such a situation. If that's how you find out who you really are, then she didn't want to know. So yes, Monse could help Signora Lucy's doubts along. But there was no honor in pressing such an advantage. And what about your own key, Montserrat? Lucy's key gleamed, and Monse's looked a little sad and dusty. Perhaps it was only gold-plated. She rubbed at it with her apron. Just junk, I think. 
All the shops would be closed by the time Monse finished work, and the next day would be San Jordi's day. So Monse ran into the bookshop across the street and chose something with a nice cover to give to Signora Lucy. This errand, combined with the Signora's long story, meant that Montserrat was an hour late returning to the laundry room. She worked long past dinner time, wringing linen under Senora Gaeta's watchful eye, silently cursing the illusions of space that had been created within the attic. All those soaring lines from ceiling to wall disguised the fact that the room was as narrow as a coffin. Finally, Senora Gaeta inspected her work and let her go. Only one remark was made about Monse's shamefully late return from lunch. You only got to do that once, my dear. Monse went home to the room and bed she shared with three other laundry maids more or less the same size as her. She and her bedfellows usually talked until they fell asleep. They were good friends, the four of them. They had to be. That night, Monse somehow made it into bed first, and the other three climbed in one by one until Monse lay squashed up against the bedroom wall, too tired to add to the conversation. While Monse had been making up her hours, the other laundry maids had attended a concert and glimpsed a few of La Pedrera's most gossiped about example, couples there. There were the Artigas from the third floor. Senor Artiga Ooh. and Senora Valdez were lovers. And the Valdezes. From the fourth floor. With the tacit consent of his wife and her husband. sepulchral smiles upon each other. Senora Valdez's husband was a gentleman many years older than her, a man much saddened by what he saw as a fatal flaw in the building's design. The lift only stopped at every other floor. This forced you to meet your neighbors as you walked the extra flight of stairs up or down. This was how Senora Valdez and Senor Artiga had first found themselves alone, together, in the first place. It was Senor Valdez's hope that his wife's attachment to that popinjay Artiga was a passing fancy. Artiga's wife couldn't wait that long, and had made several not-so-discreet inquiries regarding the engagement of assassins until her husband had stayed her hand by vowing to do away with himself if she harmed so much as a hair on Senora Valdez's head. Why didn't Artiga divorce his wife and ask Senora Valdez to leave her husband and marry him? She would have done it in a heartbeat if he only asked. So the gossips said... Senor Artiga was unlikely to ask any such thing. His mistress was the most delightful companion he'd ever known. But his wife was an heiress. No man in his rightful mind leaves an heiress unless he's leaving her for another heiress. Maybe in another life, my love, Artiga told Senora Valdez, causing her to weep in a most gratifying manner. And so, in between their not-so-secret assignations, Artiga and Senora Valdez devoured each other with their eyes. And Senora Artiga raged like one possessed, and Senora Valdez patiently awaited the vindication of an ever-dwindling hope. And their fellow residents got up a petition and rushed to the owners of the building, asking that both the Artigas and the Valdezes be evicted. The conserje and his wife liked poor old Senor Valdez, but even they'd signed the petition because La Pedrera's reputation was bad enough, and it was doubtful that this scandalous piece could hold. Laura, Monse's outermost bedmate, was taking bets. 
On the morning of San Jordi's day, before work began, Monse climbed the staircase to the third floor. To Lucy, from her Aphrodite. The white walls and window frames wound their patterns around her with the adamant geometry of a seashell. A book and a rose. That was all she was bringing. The signora wasn't at home. She must be in her garden with all her other roses. Monse sat her offering down before Signora Lucy's apartment door, the rose atop the book, and then she went to work. Monserrat, have you seen the newspaper? Asunta called out across the wash tubs. I never see the newspaper, Monserrat answered through a mouthful of thread. Monserrat, Monserrat of the key, Marta crooned beside her. The other maids took up the chant until Monse held her needle still and said, All right, what's the joke, girls? They're talking about the advertisement that's in La Vanguardia this morning, said Signora Gaeta, placing the newspaper on the lid of Monse's work basket. Monse laid lengths of thread beneath the lines of newsprint as she read... Enzo Gomez of Gomez, Cruz, and Molina awaits contact with a woman who bears the name Montserrat and is in possession of a gold key one and one-half inches in length. Without saying another word, the eagle-eyed Signora Gaeta picked up a scarlet thread an inch and a half long and held it up against Monse's key. The lengths matched. Thank you for joining us for part two of Helen Oyayemi's Books and Roses. In a moment, you'll hear a special post-show conversation. But first, we want to ask you a favor. This is the fourth story we've presented in our new podcast. After the last episode of Books and Roses, we're going to take a little break while we prepare more wonderful stories directed, designed, and read by your favorite Bay Area theater artists. In the meantime, we'd love to hear from you. Please leave a review and ratings on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you listen to podcasts, or send us an email with your thoughts to wordforwordcast at zspace.org. That's wfwcast at zspace.org. We'll share your comments at the end of part three of Books and Roses when it's released on February 28th. And now, join me for my conversation with director Michael French and actors Leontine Mbele Umbong and Janae Simon. Wow, this story just keeps getting more and more layered and more and more mysterious. I hope you're following. I'm your host, Joanne Winter, and I am here with some very special guests. The director of this podcast, Michael French. Hi, Michael. Hi, Joanne. How are you? And two of our actors, Janae Simon and Leontine Mbele Mbong. Hello, Janae. Hello, Leontine. Hello. Hello. So I want to just 
have a conversation with you all about this very fascinating story that Michael brought to us at Word for Word. And Michael, I want to start there. So how did you discover this story and what made you want to yeah. take it on? Um, in all honesty, I discovered this by accident. Um, there's a, a magazine, a literary magazine in England called Granta, uh, which had a small but absolutely committed following, which I was one of those people. And uh, I hadn't read it for maybe 10 years uh, since I've been in America. And um, I was online looking for something completely different. This was back in 2016, I think. And Granta came up. I thought, oh, wow. So I started to sort of flick through the pages online. And there was Books and Roses. And it had this sort of excerpt of, of the story. And I started to read it, not intending to read the whole thing. And then before I knew it, I'd finished. And um, it just, it was so... The thing that got me the most about the piece was um, Helen writes with such a kindness for words. It's not just the love of words. It's a kindness in the way that she puts her words together and a kindness towards the characters. And so I made a copy of it. And I've got this box at home, which I call a box of tricks, where if I see a piece of graffiti, if I see uh, some sort of sign or, or in this case, see a short story, I sort of make a copy of it and I put it in the box and I say, I'm going to do something with it at some point. I completely forgot about it. Then I met yourself and Susan of Word for Word and we started talking about doing a stage piece, I think, originally. And immediately Books and Roses came back to me. And what what drew you to it as a director? both for the stage and then when we decided to shift to audio? Well, I think the, the Helen writes with such visual language to me and because her style to me has a, has a kind of mixture of, of myth and folklore and magic realism and social realism, it was just... And you mentioned in the introduction that there's a, a mystery to the way she writes... And I love that. That That's exactly the kind of work that I want to be involved in. As well as the fact, as I discovered later on, that there's she takes some aspects of the African diaspora experience and sort of reframes them in a strange way in terms of um, Montse being left without knowing her, her parents or her heritage or where she comes from being left with these monks. That's another way to look at how some aspects of the black experience have been lived. And so all I knew was this story spoke to me both as a black person who has often felt like the outsider. Um, and it spoke to me in terms of this poetry, in terms of the way that she uses her words. It was so visual. And the idea of having a, uh, a black person as the lead in a story like this, which we don't get that often, in all honesty. We don't get black leads in sort of fantastical stories. Um, I knew I was going to do something with it at some point. Yeah, she's really amazing in that way. I've been reading more of her stories and she sort of, like you said, she deals with these um, really big ideas and really big issues in this very sort of matter of fact way. Like she just puts them in there and it's like, this is how it is in the world, both with racial ideas, feminism, queerness, you know, I think I see all of those in a lot of her writing. It's and and Lantine and Janae, um what was as actors, you know, what pulled you into the story initially? 
Leontine, do you want to? She's um, being pulled in by her cat <laughs> right yes, now. Yes, I am. So you might hear her purring. A um, beautiful cat. It, it was how to tell a story that was in a way so... Um, so engaged and, and fast paced in uh, how to how to play against that and not mm. get swept away in it, um, which was my tendency on the first read. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so so that's a that's a challenge, you know, as an as an actor to not to to counterbalance the pace or or energy to not to not allow yourself to get pulled um, whatever direction in in your character's um energy in service of the overall story i think that that's also the difference between telling a story versus a play um mm-hmm. that that if this were a play i think it would be a very different thing but because it is actually storytelling then that's a then that's a, a unique um sort of format and and energy and concentration (laughs) and also that we were audio only and yes on stage you might have had a different reaction to it as an actor Janae do you you feel similarly yeah I I think for me and and Michael and I spoke after I read it and I think I was like it's a whirlwind um because it um because I think Helen so clearly writes each location each time that you feel enveloped by it and and then we're moving along to the next place and so I was really drawn in by the challenge of that um how to tell a story using the you know oral inputs um and how to bring an audience along in that journey um because I think as as Leontine said that that it's that we can get swept up as like actors or characters, but one of the really great things that, that Michael really pushed for was like, how can we take people on this journey? So, you know, explain like what is happening as we are there. So they know that the big takeaways um, and, and not get lost in, 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 in other aspects of the world that take, take us away from understanding what's happening. And so that was, that challenge um, of how to tell this big story and this this whirlwind story, but in a way that we were taking people along in the journey, because I think so much of it is searching, you know, in our internal journeys that we have, but like, how do we take the audience on that? That was an exciting um, challenge that I was drawn in by. And also the fact that it is not a straightforward story, it is a mystery, and it took me a long time to figure it out. <laughs> um so that, that was really exciting. So, so just being captivated by that and how to, how to lay it out, lay out all the clues and all of that without, you know, pointing too much or whatever, but also so that at the end, as people chewed on it, they can, you know, think back and figure it out as well. I, I loved this experience as an actor. I loved, you know, I'm a very physical actor, but I loved being able to only utilize my my voice um, in a way that people could hear. I was definitely utilizing my body because I would need to engage it to communicate. But it's um, it was really exciting to uh, look at your voice uh, 
under the microscope lens as as one of the tools that you have in your toolkit as an actor and um, really focus on how um, acrobatic your voice could be, how expressive it could be, how dynamic it could be um, so that, you know, so that you've really explored that particular tool. And then, you know, once we're in a place where we're, we're marrying all of the other aspects in the toolkit together, like my voice will be that much more defined and have that much more um, muscle from, from having been able to, mm. to really exercise it in this medium. I like that. Talk about that a little bit more, all of you about, you know, were there certain triggers or tricks or, you know, things that you found yourself doing or, or images that you wanted to lock onto that helped you? What, what, how did you do this differently than you would do it on stage? For me, I think the thing that I really latched onto was the gift of this, that for my character, that, that this story that she was telling was a gift to her daughter. Um, and, mm. and so how do you present that vocally? Like, what is it that infuses you with, mm-hmm. with what type of love or gentleness or thoughtfulness do you give a gift and how do you um, sort of put that into your voice? Uh, so that was sort of the, the, the idea that I, that I latched onto. Mm. Monse is being exposed to this world outside of her own world. And there's so much awe and wonder mm. in that. And I, even now I'm like touching my, like my, my chest because that's where like awe and wonder lives. And, um, and uh, there'd be moments where Michael's like, no, really see the building, like actually look at it, take the time. And I had to actually like expand my chest and expand my mm. body so I could feel all of that inside. So then my voice could reflect that. Um, so it was, yeah, how can I use my body in service of my voice in this moment? Um, and then I think it's, I will always love seeing people and connecting with people, even in, um, even, in, you know, when we're doing just podcasts. So it was really great to, even if we weren't looking at each other, to be able to see characters mm-hmm. um, and to be interacting. And even if I'm I'm directing something to someone, um, even if we're on the page and we're not actually looking at each other, I feel like I'm, I'm, you know, penetrating them in a way. Um, so I, I would still use a, a, my video and oh, uh, try to be connecting with people who had their videos on. Right. For that. So just for the audience that's listening. So when we record these, we're simultaneously in two platforms We're we're recording on one platform and then we're, we're on zoom at the same time because so we can yeah. see each other because that's really important. Even when you're just doing audio to make that emotional yeah. connection. Yeah. Mm. I think the really interesting thing about the recording it this way was it's at the exact midpoint between a film and theater. In other words, um, the, 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 the recording that you're going to hear of chapter one of Books and Roses in theatre would have been discovered in rehearsal and then we're trying to recreate it on stage. And in film, you may arrive on set and have absolutely no rehearsal and sort of just go with your acting or scene partner and sort of discover it as you're going along. So we had a tiny part of rehearsal, but not enough to know exactly what we were going to do. Um, And that kept the recording alive 
as far as I'm concerned. It was somewhere in the middle, which I think is going to be part of the future of storytelling uh, theatre anyway, that this middle ground between the two. And I had, I said at the very beginning as a sort of guideline, I said, you're either retelling uh, the story of your character in this scene or you're reliving it or you're doing a combination of the, of the two of them. And to boil it down to those three approaches and then let the actor find their way through and then let the two actors record it without knowing exactly what they're going to do. Um, and I think for this medium, you can't work everything out. You can't work everything to the point where um, you're prepared. You need to discover it as you're recording it. I did enjoy that part of the process of not... Which is, which is scary sometimes. <laughs> it is, but... Um... But also, you know, sometimes in rehearsal, you find that one, you do that one run of a scene and it's like, yes, there it is. There was the, all of the energy of that one note that sparked all of the, all of the things and we got yeah. it and you can never reproduce it. It is so, so frustrating. Now, right. Even though you have all of the component parts that yeah. whatever that, that initial spark of just, um, uh, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um yeah is is gone and can't be can't be reproduced um in that way and so this this had that that element of yeah whatever that discovery is that i make that could be that could we got it so whether we use it later or not but you know that's the take (laughs) that, that could be the take and that's there's something very um very liberating about that if you wouldn't mind I'd love to sort of hear how things are going for you personally, both, you know, as, as theater workers and as just humans, how's it going? You know, what's, how has this affected you? Are you, you know, we're very lucky that we word for word, we, we decided to do this podcast and it's given all of us some creative output and, you know, a way to employ some people. Um, Are, have you been able to find enough work or, enough work no <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> no there's never enough but um yeah i mean i did i did uh, last summer i did king lear which we zoomed via youtube and that was an interesting process and that was right at the beginning when everyone was still figuring out i saw that out. yeah yeah theater requires human beings to be together we can make it happen and we can make it work and it's amazing the things that we can do. Um, but there is something as simple. I remember a moment when I was on stage with my, with uh, it was a two person play that I was doing and just being able to look across and just look her in the eye and be able to communicate in that way. Sort of Janae, what you were talking about earlier with being able to look at people on, on, you know, on zoom and, and have that, have that rapport um, that that was really Oh my God, <laughs> thank you. Um, so it's been hard not to not to have that and not to do that. But at the same time, it's such a moment of extraordinary creativity that's coming out of this. Mm. Thanks for sharing that. With me, I, I think it's been a journey um, to really figure out what feeds me and to get enough of what feeds me. Um, I am incredibly fortunate and I um, uh, have two careers, as you say. Um, so I 
um, have a, a full-time role that I have um, working in diversity inclusion, nine to five, and then I am an actor and, and have that life. And it was incredibly interesting um, last year because it was it's the longest I'd gone without doing any kind of creative project. And part of me thinks that um, it was... That, that having all of my focus on my, you know, my, my nine to five role was, was essential at that moment because it was very essential to the company, to the world, what have you. Um, but then I got to a place where I didn't have anything that was really like feeding my soul. Um, and I had been very hesitant to do Zoom theater because I'm, I'm like, that's, I mean, it's not theater, you know, like theater is the alchemy of bodies in a space. It is the alchemy of a, an audience and, and that exchange that happens. That, um, But I got to a point where like I needed some sustenance. <laughs> and um, and it's just been really interesting. Um, I, I liken this to um, this experience because I've gotten, been fortunate to work with companies that I've always wanted to wa- work with. Um, in this moment. And and so it feels like I I liken it to there being a lighthouse that all of the seeds that I've put in the ground for my career have built this lighthouse. And I see the lights from the lighthouse shining. I see them saying, okay, you're you're here, you're here. I don't know where I am in the the make of the, the whole world of my career or this moment but I see myself being grounded by the, the work that I'm doing or the spaces that I'm fortunate enough to be in. Um, and so I'm just going to continue um, into the, um, into what is nebulous and, and hope that that lighthouse continues to guide me. That's a great Helen Oyeyemi image, the lighthouse. It's really, really, I love that. <laughs> it's beautiful. Um, I, I, I've been like everyone's saying. I've been through many different sort of journeys since over the past year. I think initially my life felt as though it was shrinking, um, because I was still to some degree stuck in what I thought my life had to be artistically. And then piece by piece, as it started to open up, including this um, podcast for Word for Word, I, I'm not sure that I would have gone into this direction if it hadn't been for the pandemic. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have done. Um, also, I work for Afro Urban Society, and so um, with as a, an artistic development coach, and so I was able to work with artists that were in Swaziland, South Africa, Nigeria, Ghana, and so in that sense, um, it's my life has sort of widened. Um, working with people with completely different experiences, people that are not just from the West, um, doing work such as this podcast and I've done a couple of others um, has really changed me and changed a little bit of how I see my work I don't know if I describe it as a theatre maker but certainly as an artist going forward Um, do I want to get back to the stage and working with actors in a rehearsal room absolutely but I'm glad I've discovered this new way of telling stories I'm glad I've I've gone back to listening to the voice in a way. I think the voice is what drew me to theatre in the first place. Um, I, I, and, you know, in terms of um, 
if you think about it, one human being talking to another human being, which is what theater comes down to in my view, really technology should have come along and kind of wiped that completely off the face of the earth because it's not spectacular. It's not um, sort of um, otherworldly. And yet somehow human beings need that sound. They need the sound of the human voice telling a story. Um, and so the beauty of all this is, is to me, is that it's reminded me um, that uh, one person talking, one person listening uh, is as important as it is to have, you know, a hundred million dollar film budget for, for special effects. Um, so in some ways, something about this year has reminded me of something that I may have forgotten. And that reminder, I think, is again going to play itself out over the next two or three years. It's not been easy for sure. Emotionally, it's not been easy. I think um, for the first maybe eight or nine months, I kind of looked at it as in, oh, okay, I'm, I'm sort of getting by. But the last two or three months have been hard. We're really sort of sunk in <laughs> that this isn't going away anytime soon. And um, yeah, it's been hard. Yeah. Well, I am really grateful that we all were able to come together and, and work on this beautiful story. And I thank you so much for being here uh, for this conversation. I look forward to hopefully more collaborations together. And um, we will we'll see you all soon. I, I just want to say again that I am joined today by Michael French, the director of this podcast, Leontine Mbele Mbong, who played Orly. Thank you. And enjoy part three. And Janae Simon, who played Montserrat Thank you. in our podcast of Books and Roses. Thank you all so much. Books and Roses podcast was directed by Michael French and features Rotimi Agbabiaka as Senora Gaeta and Ensemble, Sofia Ahmad as Sofia and Ensemble, Leontine Mbele Mbong as Orly and Ensemble, Brian Rivera as The Gambler and Ensemble, Janae Simon as Montserrat, and Megan Trout as Senora Lucy and Ensemble. The sound design and original music is by Teddy Hulsker and dramaturgy by Lindsay Jenkins. Our sound designer is Joe Moore. Line producer is Chris Swan. Production assistant is Kelly Ho. And production manager is Colin McNally. Our director of marketing and distribution is Andrew Burmester. Be sure to join us next week for the third and final part of Books and Roses. Word for Word is a program of ZSpace. You can find out more about Word for Wordcast on our website, www.zspace.org pod. That's www.zspace.org pod. You can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Please like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And please consider a donation to support the many wonderful artists who make this podcast. Until next week, I'm your host, Joanne Winter. Thank you for listening.